This is News Talks on the Record. Sean Defoe in for Gavin Riley today. And now the word of the summer appears to be staycation. So across the island of Ireland, hundreds of thousands of us will holiday at home this year. But it's nothing new really. Indeed, going back more than a generation or two, it was pretty standard practice. And the history of Irish tourism, both in and out of the island, is a pretty curious tale that tells us much about the broader story of life in 20th century Ireland. So imagine getting on a train with no clue where it's going, for example. This was the Irish staycation. And joining me to talk about this is Donald Fallon with another edition of Hidden Histories. Donald, good to have you. Good to be here. Good to be here. So tourism, a bigger picture of how life changed in the 19th century. I think so, yeah. And I mean, the history of, of tourism and holidaying and, you know, even have, even having time off work, you know, it's part of a much broader story of, of, of leisure. And I think when you study it, it tells us a lot about, you know, how life has changed on the island of Ireland and indeed, you know, internationally, the, the, the story of holidaying and, and tourism, it's linked to the story of the bank holiday or you know, the weekend, things that were very, very hard won. And I suppose it's also fundamentally part of the economic history uh, of the world, you know, that people had the time and the disposable income to do it. But this year is, of course, very, very peculiar. And I think what's interesting is that it's not economic constraints you know, that are keeping us at home this year because the economy was doing quite well. Uh, up, up to this crisis uh, as it was in decades past but it's something different uh, entirely it's a health concern that's keeping us at home mm. But the, the actual word staycation is a new invention we wouldn't have called that in, in decades past no, for example uh, Yeah it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a relatively recent invention uh, it, it, it dip into the newspaper archives actually finds absolutely nothing for it before the financial collapse of 2008 and it, it emerges in the States and Merriam-Webster they put, they put it in the dictionary 2009 so it's a word that's only about a decade old a term that's only a decade old but while the term is new uh, the concept definitely isn't and you know we I mean an, an island people traditionally with very empty pockets we knew more about it uh, than most people did it's fair to say but I think again going back to this point that the two dimensions to this summer that are unique one is obviously us staying here you know hence staycation but the other thing that's unique this year is is the absence of of, of visitors i mean in in 2007 about nine million people visited the republic of ireland alone which is extraordinary so we can't plug that gap you know we can't fill that gap even if we all go on holidays one and a half times over which is which is part of the tale too mm, and it's obviously one of the big problems for tourism at the moment uh, we we often i suppose when we think of our holidays now most of the time we think about getting on a plane going away to tormelinos or wherever you're having yourself but uh, trains they were the original bedrock of the tale absolutely and i think it breaks hearts today when you look at a map of ireland's rail network as we as we know it and you contrast it with the victorian age it's one of the, the few things that's gone backwards you know on the island of ireland we have one of the best rail networks in the world and it's just fallen uh, apart and of course, I mean, the tourism booms because of the railway line. And for Dubliners, I think the most you know, the, the, the proof of that was the emergence of a, of a kind of Victorian seaside town with Bray. I mean, the rail network just made Bray this, this great big attraction. So, I mean, Bray became known in the mid 19th century as as the Brighton of Ireland. And Chris Lawler, who is the main kind of historian of Bray, he's written about how once the train came along, the town mushroomed with hotels and guest houses springing up all along the seafront. So, I mean, the train was the great creator of Irish tourism in the 19th century. But there was, and some would say in certain parts of the world, there still is a bit of snobbishness towards Bray as well. I think so. I mean, the, the view was that this was, you know, the, the working man, the tenement man, complete with family, kind of heading off to Bray. Uh, from the packed city centre. And the city centre was considered, you know, you know somewhat dirty and, and, and cramped and the like. So I don't think the Brighton of Ireland was necessarily intended as a compliment. I don't think Bray were selling, you know, Brighton of Ireland T-shirts and the like. But the presence of kind of women, you know, going out and bathing was commented on as well. This is a totally 
different era. You know, women were, in essence, banned from places like the 40 foot and going swimming. So Bray was a nightmare for some people. You know, the working class of Dublin descending on this new uh, seaside town. But even when you walk along Bray's promenade today, you know, the, you have the beautiful kind of Victorian bandstand uh, and the like. You can see the kind of 19th century uh, seaside resort. It's still kind of hidden there uh, amidst all the slot machines if, if you look hard enough. <laughs> um, we, we often hear claims, we've heard it lately in the Dole uh, from Michael Healy Ray who keeps saying that uh, Killarney, <laughs> Killarney is the tourism capital of the world. <laughs> not only Ireland is, is there some truth to that? He's, he's not entirely wrong uh, I mean, Killarney actually claims to be the birthplace of, of Irish tourism and there's a really compelling argument for it because it, when the railway came along it, it boomed uh, from the 1850s on and on one level it was a genius kind of creation because the, the Great Southern and Western Railway Company who got people down to Killarney found that the Great Southern Killarney Hotel so they were building the attraction You know, if you build it they will come so to speak uh, and it, it's created by the railway companies as the, as the place to go. But you find guidebooks to Killarney popping up as early as the 1860s, even even in Britain. So it was the one-stop shop as far as people were concerned. Uh, Thomas Cook actually set up an office in Ireland in the 1880s, mostly to get British visitors uh, down to down to Killarney. So, you know, Healy Ray, he's, he's somewhat on the money uh, with his <laughs> argument. But I suppose the great misfortune of, of, of Irish tourism was, of course, the coming uh, of, of a revolution. You couldn't fight the Irish and then go on holiday and visit the Irish at the same time. No, and after independence, we seem to have set up a tourist board at pretty much the worst possible time. Nineteen thirty-nine, the Irish tourist board is born. So literally, you know, as the continent just descends into unprecedented uh, warfare, so its entire modus operandi was was turned on its head overnight. And it's a little bit like Fulcher Ireland at the moment, because now Fulcher Ireland have this very weird situation where they have to sell Ireland, you know, to the to the Irish. So when the tourist board, the Irish tourist board, is born in nineteen thirty-nine. Immediately, overnight, its focus goes from trying to sell Ireland to, to Irish Americans to selling it to the, to the natives. And the first slogan that they push is, you know, see Ireland first. In other words, before you go on holidays, not that many people could go on holidays in 1939, but before you go on holidays, see, see Ireland first. But the problem was, you know, we were rationing food and tea on the island. We were rationing things longer than the British. By the time they'd established the NHS, we were, we were still in emergency mode. So domestic tourism in, in 1939, 1940, 41 just, just didn't exist. Though the British, as they still do, did come in big numbers, including quite a lot of politicians. Extraordinary. The, the, the kind of British visitor to Ireland in, in, in the 1940s, like 1948, so not long after the war, in one summer, the Lord Chancellor, the Minister of Supplies, the Secretary of State for Commonwealth Relations and the Prime Minister, Clement Attlee, they all holidayed in Ireland in the very same summer. I mean, can you imagine? having four or five members of, of, of the Tory cabinet in holidays in Ireland at the same time. That must have been a record. And Attlee, the prime minister, actually goes on holidays in, in, in Mayo, spends time with Sean McBride, they go fishing together, and insists on kind of minimal fuss and security. You know, he wants to get the real West of Ireland experience. But unfortunately, unlike today, where we, we love to photograph a, a royal in, in the Guinness storehouse holding a pint of Guinness, things were different in the 40s. I mean, the... the Ireland was still making a territorial claim to the north. The Irish Tourist Board was never going to use pictures of the British Prime Minister fishing and <laughs> fishing in Mayo. But it is interesting that we had that enormous appeal uh, for for the like the upper echelons of the upper echelons of British society uh, in the 1940s. For us, though, staycations at the time were all about the mystery train. The mystery train is an incredible story. There'd be a great documentary in the mystery train for someone. I mean, literally excursions to, to God knows where. And of course, the only limitations were. 
where you started off gave you some idea where you were going. So, you know, if you were in Dublin, you were told to go to Connolly Station, you were probably going north. And if you were told to go to Euston, you were probably going south. But you would literally get on a train at a reduced fee and had absolutely no clue where you were going. So you get hordes of Dubliners. It began in Dublin, but then spread across the country, either kind of elated or deflated, depending on, on where the train stopped uh, in rural Ireland. And they were absolutely enormously popular, uh, real recession holiday stuff. And CIE eventually spread them out all across the island of Ireland. So you could have a mystery train leaving Waterford, Galway, Dublin, Drogheda, you know, at the same time and all, all descending onto uh, each other's each other's cities. But unfortunately, due to the, the odd outbreak of violence, they have to stop them. Uh, they still go in some rag weeks, I understand. But um, they, <laughs> they, they, the CIE backing, maybe not so much. Um, in real terms, then, what actually stopped us from going abroad as much as staying where we were? I was amazed. Uh, Damien Corliss wrote a really good memoir of growing up in Dublin. He, he makes a great point that a, a package holiday in Spain, a, a two week package holiday in Spain in the 1960s, was about eight to 10 times the cost in real terms of the same holiday 50 years later. So, I mean, in a world before Ryanair and before budget airlines, the idea of getting on a plane and going abroad was just beyond so many families. And Corliss has a great line in his memoir. He talks about kids being taken to Dublin Airport literally to walk around the viewing deck. And he says that was as close as most of us or our parents ever got uh, to boarding a plane. And most Irish people, to be honest, their experience of going abroad was incredibly limited. I mean, you had the the World Travel Service based in Dublin, but I always thought that name was kind of peculiar, given that they basically went to one part of the world, and that was Lords and back constantly. <laughs> so, I mean, there was very, very little foreign travel beyond that kind of subsidised, you know, religious foreign travel uh, out, of, out of the country. But the arrival of airports did have this dramatic effect in the sense that even if we couldn't go to them, they brought people here and that was that was significant too. Yeah, and inbound tourism, the thing we're doing without at the moment, I mean, that, that was huge, at least until the Troubles, it was becoming massively and enormous. Digging, I couldn't believe the numbers on this. I mean, 5% of our, of our GNP by the 1960s, which is enormous, you know, was, was foreign tourism. And they only came from two places. I mean, they reckon that up, up to 1970, 90% of foreign visitors to Ireland came from either the US or, or the UK, which is remarkable. So that's entirely you know, Irish diaspora uh, driven, and we had this amazing boom in the in in the sixties. You see these beautiful Erlingus posters from the time. They're all you know they're they're striking colours, great kind of modernist style, Irish hills and valleys, girls dancing at the crossroads, Illin Pipers, all that kind of stuff. And the sixties was a, was a booming time. I mean, you get these great postcard images of tourists at the Rocket Cashel, the Blarney Stone, Trinity College. But then the eruption of the Troubles just collapses at all. And, and year on year, 69, 70, 71, 72 and on, the Republic literally loses tens of thousands of visitors year on year as a result of this negative perception of Ireland uh, on, on the global stage. So uh, to sum it all up, really, Donald, this summer, not entirely without precedent. It isn't. I think the moral of the story is this, you know, time and time again, our tourist industry has collapsed and generally it's done so for reasons kind of beyond our, or most of our control, you know, a revolution, a global world war and more besides has collapsed our foreign visitor numbers here. And we have always responded by holidaying at home uh, ourselves. And we do have a remarkable, I mean, if you have to be stuck on a little island, this is a pretty good little island to be stuck on. You know, we're, we are still captivated by the same places, Killarney and the, and, and the like. But I think, as I said at the beginning, and you can't overemphasize this, what, what's unique about this is that unlike the, the, the hungry 1980s when, when no one had anything, Many Irish people do have some money in their pockets because the crisis befell at a time when the economy was doing reasonably well. So, I mean, the indicators, I think, this week, talking to friends who own restaurants and, and, and bars and the like, is that things are reasonably healthy. People do are coming back. But I think the success of the staycation, it's a two-way street, you know. You require loyalty from Irish people to stay at home, but you also require value for Irish people. 
to stay at home. So it, it's up to us all really to make it work. Mm. So a little bit of positivity there that we have been through things like this before and gotten out the other side. Donald Fallon, very thank you very much for, for talking to us today, author of the Come Here To Me books and the host of the Three Castles Burning podcast.